So, if you do have a Bible with you, uh, it'd be great if you brought them along. Um, Genesis 37, first book in the Bible. Um, if you want to turn to that, I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes' time. But what we want to do, as we're actually approaching Vision Sunday in church, which is going to be next week, is to, to think about um, what it means to advance, to be faithful people, to be people who are in step with the Holy Spirit, and to be people who are ready to move into the next thing that God has for you. So over the summer, uh, as leadership in, in both churches, we felt drawn a number of times to the story of Joseph. We think we can learn a lot from the story of Joseph and how he ended up in a place of leadership and influence to help feed uh, and lead a nation in a time of crisis. And I want to use this story as we continue our advance series. And there's, there's no doubt that you know, we feel like we're in the middle of unprecedented times, don't we, uh, with COVID. But I suspect that if we were to go fo- fast forward somehow 10 years and look back at now, we'd be going, we're really just in the start over in the middle of something. You know, and actually if we, we go back, um, uh, and no matter how far you go back in history, you'll always find these points where like the world was in crisis, things have changed. But I think we're in the middle of a major shift that probably started in the 1970s that actually we're in the middle of societal, economic, technological and environmental change that's actually gathering pace. And so if you don't like change, this is not a good world to be on. Um, There's maybe one where nothing changes, but um, it can give you that sense of dread, or if you're like me, it can give you a sense of excitement. It's like there's opportunities to do new things. Um, But culture and society has always been changing. So how do we as Christians navigate whatever the changes happen to be that we face in our lifetime. Now, I could talk forever and a day, literally, on all this kind of stuff. I just love it. But COVID has accelerated the need for change. And many of our systems that we've been used to, that we've grown up with, that have been the building blocks of our society around us are on the verge of falling apart. And even this week, we saw the increase in national insurance contributions that everybody's been, been talking about, um, you know, going up what, a percent as, as a way of trying to throw extra money at the health service. In my opinion, it's just throwing extra money at a major problem that money alone is not the answer to. Um, but if we take a slightly bigger picture, what we can see is that our welfare system was designed at the end of the Victorian age and in between two world wars. The system is designed to help people with major illnesses or injury to get better and to move on or to die. That social welfare was started to give the poorest people in our society um, what they needed. But now, 70 years later from when our NHS started, so much has changed. People live longer with more complex health needs and chronic illness. Other systems are struggling to provide for those Um, who are in need. The welfare system is costing us more money and the government's answer is to throw more money at it. And what we probably need is a massive reform at a systematic level. But the problem that we have in our society, just so you know, is that politicians work off a four-year cycle. 
and they have lots of agendas and major change and transformation is normally not one of them because it has to, they need to get elected and normally when you make major changes they take longer than four years and so when you're in the middle of a major change, you know when you're in the middle of house renovations and you get to that point where you wish you'd never started and you don't know how it's going to end, that's kind of what it's probably like to be a politician um, who's trying to change things. But anyway, what we need is a complete reformation of welfare systems as we continue to, uh, you know, with a godly mandate which it is to look after the sick, the poor and the vulnerable. Rising costs of living require new and innovative solutions from everything from social care to economics to pay structures. We have an aging population so we need new work patterns, we need new support systems. The world's population um, is probably going to hit around 9 billion by 2046, which is 25 years from now. Um, and the environmental crisis requires an effort on a global scale to reduce global warming, the consequences of which are disproportionately affecting the poor and the vulnerable. See, if they don't affect us, we think, hey, you know, a bit of global warming. People in Northern Ireland are loving the global warming because it's like the sun. Um, but it disproportionately always affects the most poor and vulnerable. There's a lot of things in society that do that. Why should you care about any of that stuff? It probably seems like more of the kind of nerds like me that just are really interested in that sort of thing. But let me tell you what the Bible says. In Micah 6 verse 8, um, it says, What does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Poverty is a justice issue because there's more than enough to go around. Healthcare is a justice issue because the poor, the poorest in our society will live on average 20 years longer than the most affluent people in our society. The poor will live longer in ill health and die younger than the richest people in our society. That is a justice issue. God cares about justice. And the heart of God is turned especially to those who are poor and vulnerable. And therefore our hearts should be too. How are we going to change things? At our 25th anniversary we were talking about looking forward to the next 25 years. Okay, so the reason why I told you that the population was going to increase to 9 billion in 2046 is because that's in 25 years time. But what, what is the next 25 years going to hold for us? What, one of the things that we did on Wednesday night, if you weren't there, is that um, we took a scroll, uh, a very long scroll, and we rolled it out down the length of the auditorium. Uh, and we asked people to picture, if that was 25 years, this blank scroll. And the Bible calls Christians and people that love Jesus it says actually in Acts 2 and in Joel 2 that when the Spirit of God falls upon God's people, he will give old men dreams and young men visions and, and men and women will have dreams and visions. For what? For the future? Okay, because if you have a vision it has to actually be ruled out over a course of a period of time. Uh, and I actually believe that the dreams of those who, of us who are slightly older will actually fuel the visions of the people who are a bit younger who are going to have the ability to, to actually see those things come to pass. 
uh, as well. I think there's an intergenerational thing in that passage that we potentially miss. But anyway, we ruled out this scroll along the ground and we thought, what if we, as God's people, could hear from heaven and have dreams and visions for the future, our kids and adults alike, and and imagine that scroll being filled with the dreams and visions for how our society, how our city, how our culture could be changed and transformed. What would that look like? Because that is a heaven-sent mandate that we would do that. What could we achieve if we had big dreams and big, uh, big visions in 5, 10 or 25 years time? What is God calling us to do? You see, the Bible tells us that we have the mind of Christ. We don't just have our own ideas. When the Spirit of God comes upon us, we think differently. We are able to see things differently. So I, I want us to, um, to turn in our, in our Bibles to, to Genesis 37 and we'll read about somebody who had big dreams. Okay. Um, and just as a kind of slight preamble, in Genesis 12, we read about a man called Abram. And God spoke to Abram and said, I'm going to make you a mighty nation and your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars and the, the sky and the sand and um, beside the sea. You know, I'm going to make you a great nation. And so Abraham eventually had a son called Isaac, and he had a son called Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. He also had some daughters. Um, And they became the 12 tribes of Israel. They became this mighty nation. But one of the youngest was a guy called Joseph. And he was um, actually the oldest son of Jacob's sort of favorite wife. It's different times then, okay? Um, Rachel. And even if you're not that aware, you're not really into your Bible, you kind of have some kind of idea of who Joseph was because what kind of coat did he have? Or an amazing technicolor dream coat if you're into Andrew Lloyd Webber. So thanks to popular society... We, we have an understanding roughly of this story of this guy called Joseph. And it actually is, when you start to read it in scripture, this epic story about this guy. And let me start from uh, Genesis 37. You can follow along in your Bibles. And it says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpah his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Nobody likes a telltale, sure they don't. You know, even in the Bible. So, now Israel, another name for Jacob, um, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate, slash amazing technicolored uh, robe uh, for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. Also known as jealousy. Okay? Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He wasn't happy that just to be hated. He decided, let's take it to the next level. Um, he said, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn in the field when suddenly my sheaf stood upright and while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it, his brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated them, him 
all the more because of his dreams and what he said. Joseph was a dearly loved son who was hated by his brothers, but he was 17, okay? I remember what I was like when I was 17, and I probably would have done exactly the same sort of thing. So the story goes on, if you know it. I'm going to just um, go through it quickly, because if I read it to you, we'd be here all day. But his brothers are working, they're shepherds. They're out in the fields, really quite far away. Um, Jacob sends Joseph, go and, go and see your brothers. They see him coming in the distance and, and go, here comes your man with his fancy coat. Let's kill him. Um, quite serious. And uh, so you know, there's a bit of an argument. They decide, well, well, we'll throw him into this pit, decide what to do with him. And some uh, guys come through and they decide to sell him on as, as a slave to um, some travellers. And then... They make up a big story, they spill some blood on his coat, make up this big story, take it back to the father, saying, okay, he must have been killed by wild animals. So he gets sold as a slave, and then he gets sold again, and he gets sold into the household of Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's officials. He's the captain of the guard. And so if you jump through to Genesis 39, verse 2, it said, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted him with everything he owned. From that time on, he put him in charge of his household. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on Potiphar, on everything he had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. So Joseph finds himself in a place of favour, but he's still a slave. But, and when he's at the height of his success, when it looks like he's got back a lot of what he lost, um, it gets taken away from him. So Potiphar's wife um, makes an advance towards him. Joseph turns that down. And this leads to an accusation of rape. And Joseph ends up in prison. And so Joseph finds himself with everything that he had worked hard to gain. His possessions, his status, and his reputation. And he finds himself in another pit, a prison in Egypt. And in this prison, he's faithful to God and to his circumstances. And he again finds himself in a place of influence. And so this time, um, we, we find basically the same story again. The Lord is with him, and the, the chief of the guard gives him responsibility, and everything that he does prospers. And God, his hand is upon Joseph in that place. And here we see that his faithfulness in difficult circumstances and the favour of the Lord continues to rest upon Joseph. But he is still a prisoner. He is still a slave. So what happens then, if you know the story really well, you know that two men from uh, Pharaoh's uh, royal kind of servants end up in prison. They have dreams. Joseph interprets those dreams. One of them ends up dead. One of them ends up being reinstated. And we jump to Genesis 41. And it says, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, because Pharaoh had had a dream by this stage that nobody could interpret, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. 
this is two years later. So this guy had basically said, listen, I put a good word in for you, Joseph, when I get out of uh, prison, thanks for the dream interpretation, and he forgets about him. But two years later, when Pharaoh has a dream, Joseph um, ends up coming front and center before Pharaoh. So it says, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own and a young Hebrew was there with us and he interpreted that dream and I was restored and so Pharaoh brings Joseph up and tells him this dream that he can interpret and Joseph says I I can't I can't do it but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires and so Joseph listens to the dream and he interprets the dream. And the interpretation of the dream is that there are going to be seven years of plenty in the land and then seven years of severe famine. So severe will the famine be that everybody will forget about the time when there has been a lot. And Joseph goes on to explain to Pharaoh. And this is in, in, in chapter 41, verse 33. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food up in the good years that are coming and store uh, it up in, uh, store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. And so not only does God give Joseph the interpretation of the dream but he gives him a plan and a strategy to see the land saved and see the land thrive and so what happens to Joseph is that in his faithfulness again um, in verse 41 Pharaoh basically goes well listen there's no better man than you because you know God is, is, is with you um, so you can be the guy who's going to coordinate all this So Pharaoh said, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain on his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as a second in command and the people shouted, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land. And though we see that, that actually in his reinstatement, he gets his fancy clothes back as well. You know, God doesn't miss um, any details when it comes to that. So Joseph was 17 when he had the initial dream. And he was 39 when he was finally reunited with his family because his family come to Egypt to get food. And there's a big long story about that, which is great. Please read it. And he was 44 when the famine ended. So interestingly, that's well over... 25 years of a life and so there's so many things that stand out to me about this story about Joseph the fact that he God gives a big dream to a teenager that he has to learn to steward well the dream comes before the maturity to steward it and so when our kids tell us big dreams when our kids have big visions like they want to do this and we want to do that and we think 
you're only eight, like what do you know? Um, how do we steward the dreams of our children? If we want to see our, our city transformed, if we want to see our nation transformed, are we listening to the visions and dreams of our kids in order that we might steward them well, in order we, that we might create the circumstances in which they're going to go and actually thrive? Joseph's life has a lot of ups and downs, but the one thing that remains all of the time is that he is faithful. His persistence allows him to be a person of influence wherever he is placed. But one of the things that strikes you about this story is that he has this big dream, a big vision, and he gets um, rejected by his family. He gets sold by his own brothers into slavery. And then he gets success in Potiphar's house. And then he faces a false accusation and he ends up in prison. How many times does it take for him to fall down and he keeps getting back up again? And what happens very often in our lives is that something happens to us. We had a big dream, we had a big vision, and life goes completely pear-shaped. Things don't work out. And so many people get stuck in a loop. Oh, you know, I thought God had all these things for me. I thought I could do this, I thought I could do that. But then this happened, but then that happened. And, and sometimes as a pastor, over the years I meet people and they tell me their story about how things were going to go in a certain direction and then this thing happened. And they talk about it like it was yesterday, but when I listen carefully to the story I maybe realise that it's five years ago or it's ten years ago and they're just going round and round and round the same problem. They haven't moved on, they haven't moved past this sense of where was God, why did this not work out? But if you've been alive for any length of time, you will know life doesn't work out the way you planned it. Life, things come um, your way and it, there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. But it's so important that like Joseph, we don't get stuck in the same narrative, that we don't keep rotating around the same failure, whether it's ours that we've created, because Joseph created the first problem for himself, that his brothers hated him, because he walked around in a fancy cloak and told them that they were all going to bow down to him. That was a problem of his own making. But his brothers chose to sell him into slavery. Potiphar's wife chose to make a false accusation against him, other people. But he didn't then spend the rest of his life blaming those other people for how they had treated him and just rotating around that same narrative. He remained faithful to God. So if you feel stuck this morning, there's grace for you, there's breakthrough for you. If you feel like you're rotating around the same thing and you can't move on, God is the God of breakthrough. And what he's looking for you, from you today, is faithfulness for the next step, faithfulness for the next thing that God has for you. So what God, this is my kind of, I've got three points, okay, and I know I should, I'm like halfway through, but the, f- the three points, are, the first one is that, that what God requires for us is faithfulness in all circumstances. Citywide transformation comes when we all play our part, wherever we are placed. And you know, some of us kind of think, well, I can't do anything. I am not anybody. But what we see in the life of Joseph is all he did was to be faithful to the circumstances that he had. He's a slave in the house of, a, of a, um, an Egyptian. He could have just went, oh, I'll just do, I'll do my best here. I'll just do whatever needs to be done. I'll just 
what I'm going to do today. But he is faithful and his faithfulness is recognised and God's hands upon him. Again, when he ends up in prison, all he does is be faithful to his circumstances. So my daughter Lucy, um, she's uh, in school but she works in Supervalue. And not long after she started working there, her manager pulled her aside and said that several customers had come to talk to her about Lucy. Lucy's rather worried because she's thinking these are complaints. But the customers had come and taken the time to come to the manager to basically say, that, that girl treated me with, with so much respect. That girl is, is a, breath, a breath of fresh air. She's so friendly and so nice and so kind. And, you know, as a parent, I feel proud in hearing that because Lucy could just rock up and just do her bit in super value, scan people shopping and put it into a bag. And, you know, she's a teenager and so she could just do the teenage thing of just like, um, I don't know if it's another language, but the grunting. <laughs> huh? She could, she could have just rocked up and that's what the people in Super Value could have got. But what they got was the fullness of who Lucy is. Because Lucy loves people. She loves to engage with people. She loves to talk. And she brings the fullness of herself into that environment. And so in a small way, those people that came and complimented the manager had been changed, had been transformed because they had encountered her and the fullness of who God has called her to be. And so there's no circumstance in which we cannot influence. There's no circumstance in which we cannot bring change or transformation. So what is your circumstance? Who are the people around you? What is in your hand? What are you being called to be faithful to steward? Because I think if we can all do that wherever God has placed us, that is how we start to become the everyone, every day, everywhere, where we see our communities transformed. We talked about it last week when I read the, the verse, we do not shrink back as some do, we, but we have faith and are saved. From Hebrews 10 verse 39. We don't shrink back. We don't just disappear into the background. We go, God, what is your vision for where you have placed us now? And we might have a big vision and a big dream for the long-term future. Lucy's dream is not to work in super value all of her life because she's, she's studying for other things. But while she is there, she will be faithful what God has called her to do. And so we need to learn, the second point is to be in step with the Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? And in our story, Pharaoh himself, the most powerful man in the known world, states, when thinking about the next 14 years, he says, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh recognizes this guy isn't just smart because of himself or his own intellect. The spirit of God rests upon him. Is there anyone better to rule over our land in this time of crisis? Galatians 5 verse 25, Paul writes to church in Galatia and he encourages them, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. So we wouldn't be keeping in step with the Spirit unless there was movement, unless we were going somewhere, unless there were things to do. You see, the Spirit is always at work. So we too should always be at work. We should be asking, Holy Spirit, what are you doing today where you have placed me? 
What are you doing today in my workplace or in my home or with my family and my kids, with the people around me, with the, the things that I'm working in? What are you doing, Holy Spirit? And responding to that. So we face uncertain times. We don't know the right way to go. And yet we have the opportunity to cultivate a life lived with and through the presence of God. To keep in step with the Spirit. Both as individuals. But also it's a collective thing. See one of the fascinating things about the, the, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Is in the Old Testament when the Spirit comes upon a person. The Spirit comes upon a person for a specific time, for a specific purpose. And so you have this one man, Joseph. You have a one man uh, in Abraham. You, maybe, you have a one woman in an Esther or, or Deborah. And the Spirit rests upon them for a specific time and a specific purpose. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Upon all people. And when we, we did a series before lockdown in Acts, and one of the things that we saw was that in each forward thrust of the church um, in Acts was accompanied by the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Acts 15 verse 28, it said, the apostles said, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to do this. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. It sounds like they were having a chat in the room. What do we think, guys, we should do? Well, you know, the Holy Spirit said this. We think that's a good idea. Let's do this together because the Holy Spirit is there guiding them every step of the way. And that's been our story as Emmanuel poured it down. That we, we've ended up joining two churches together to make Emmanuel poured it We've ended up, we were in the High Street Mall over there and then we felt God calling us to go elsewhere and we're trying to discern that. But, but we're trying to discern that together and here we are now and we might well end up in the building at the back of Toy Master in the future. But whatever it is that God's calling us to do, whatever the Spirit is doing, we're going to take that step and we're going to follow Him. You see, we're part of a body of believers, part of a community. And so we all function together. And so when we don't know the way to go, we're put in relationship with other people who can actually help and encourage us too. Hebrews 10 verse 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the body of Christ is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world and we are his body. We are his witnesses. We are his representatives on this earth. And we've all been given different gifts. We've all been given different abilities. We've all been given different feelings of influence. And we need to be faithful and creative in what God is calling us to do. You see, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16 tells us that we have the mind of Christ. We're able to think differently. God gave Joseph the ability to interpret the dream, but he also gave him the strategy for how it was to be rolled out. Joseph boldly declares, here's how you're going to do it. Put the food here, do this, do that, do that. Those are the things that the Spirit has revealed to him. So we are given the Spirit of wisdom and revelation to figure out the, the answers to the brokenness in our world. And as the world struggles for answers, we need to individually and collectively step forward to advance. And we need to help a society move 
from a place of individualism to a place of community. See, so many of our systems are designed to support the individual. Our welfare system is designed to support the, the individual, our healthcare system is, but community is a mutually supporting system. And we as a church, we're supposed to be good at community. It's supposed to kind of be our thing, but we need to get better at it. We need to be less exclusive. We need to be salt and light. And if you're going to be salt, it needs to be sprinkled. If you're going to be light, it needs to be shown. We need to be out there amongst other people. If we want to be the everyone, every day, everywhere, we need to figure out what that looks like. But not just for ourselves, but as a community. And so one of the things that we're going to do um, in this autumn term as a church, Emmanuel Lurgan and Emmanuel Portadown, is that we're going to have um, a little thing called catalyst conversations. So we're going to pick a topic, a subject, um, and we're going to gather together those who are interested in that particular topic. So say it's poverty, for example, or mental health. And we're going to, we're going to get some speakers in, do a few week kind of TED talk type things. But we're going to get people together around tables and go, here are some of the problems in our society, in our culture. You have a little idea, you have a little idea, you have a little idea, you have experience here, you have experience there. When we come together, can we think differently? Can we think collectively to come up with some solutions that can make a difference to the people in our communities? Um, there's a, a brilliant a, a book called Rebel Ideas by Matthew Said, um, and uh, it's called The Power of Diverse Thinking. And what he sort of says is that most patents these days for new products and new designs are um, put in by groups or collectives, and that, that mo most new ideas come from groups and collectives. Most um, theses and, and, and stuff worked on in universities come from groups and collectives. Uh, most um, Christian songwriting comes from groups and collectives. I don't know if that's always a good idea, but um, there's power in us coming together and yet we live in such an individualistic society that, that it's revolutionary to build things within the context of community. You see, unfortunately, over the next few decades, I suspect that the world will actually look a lot more tribal, that communities become, will become a lot more splintered, that people, when faced with a lot of adversity, will start to close in on those that look like them and those that are similar to them or think in, in similar ways. And we see that already um, in the way that social media works, but I think we're going to see that even in, in whole nations and nation states splitting and gathering around themselves. Let's just keep us okay. Let's just keep um, who we can control and manage together. And we're going to come against that. We're going to come in the opposite spur to that because we were um, rescued by a father and formed in a family, that we are a Christian community, that we are the body of Christ, that we are inclusive, not exclusive in the way that we do things. And so the task seems really big. It seems too much for us. We kind of think, I can just about get out of bed, put my clothes on the right way around and, and get on with my day. How can I change the world? But change what it is that God has placed for you to do. God actually qualifies the called. We are all called. We're all called. There's a calling on each of our lives. There's a plan for each of our lives. We're all called to be involved in it. But my third point is, what are you being called to do? Paul talks about this actually in Second Corinthians when he says, We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, 
but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us. What is your sphere of influence? Where has God called you? So your sphere of influence as a child of God, dearly loved by your father, he has plans for you. Mother Teresa famously said, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. Not all of us can do great things. Not all of us are called to do great things, but we are called to do things with great love. And to steward what God has for us. So what is in your hand? What has God given you to steward? Ask him, but also ask those around you. Sometimes we can't see the good things that God has in us that we need other people. So be that person that calls out the good in others that says, I see this in you, I see that in you. Call that out because if we do that for each other, we will see things change. We will see things transformed over the next number of years because we are building community. Some people in this room are called to change a factory floor for Jesus because you're working on that floor and that's your sphere of influence. Some are called to be faithful to one or two because that's their assignment from heaven. Some are called to innovate and bring new solutions to specific areas. Maybe to give years or even a lifetime to change one thing and do that really well. Or to be a catalyst for change to those around you. I'm nearly finished. In the 1920s and 30s, there was this guy, and his name was uh, William Henry Beveridge, and he later became Lord Beveridge, very posh. And, um, but he had a vision of a welfare system that was free to all. It was a radical idea, it was controversial and unlikely to succeed. It was too radical for the politicians of the day to get behind, and they wouldn't stake their political careers on it such universal reform. So what he did was he wrote his ideas out and he published them. He published them as a book and he got them in the hands of, of everyone. He got them in the, in the hands of everyday people. And he toured around the UK and he gave lectures on this new idea for a welfare system that would be free to offer a healthcare system that would be free at the point of access. And radical change gave birth to something which for decades and decades and decades we have all benefited from and taken part in. And he did a fantastic job, but, but now, 70 years later, we need new ideas, we need new systems, we need new processes. We need people who are willing to go, here's the way things are. I think they could be better. I think they could be different. I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to talk to other people about this. I'm going to talk to experts and talk to mavericks, talk to people who have weird and, and wacky ideas and, and figure out, oh, there's a different way of doing this. And so some of us are called to change one thing, but it might be a really important thing. It might be a new system, a new process, a new procedure in some area of influence, and that's your call. And that might be your life's call to do that. Others are called change one or two people. For those of us that are parents, um, sometimes raising children feels like um, herding cats. Um, they're just all over the place and they don't listen to you. Don't, but you, you, know, you see things in them. You see things in them and you think, oh, how do I, 
how does the gifting and maturity ever come together? Because I see the person that God's calling you to be, but you're just really won't listen and won't behave. You know, it's stressful. But like, what if we actually just thought, well, you know, our, our kids can be world changers or community changers or street changers. Or, or they can just be the best person that God has called them to be wherever he has placed them. We need to believe in them. But also, we need to disconnect. There's lots of things we need to disconnect from. We need to disconnect a lot from, from things, obvious things like, like social media. But we also need to disconnect from, from the, the worry, from the stress, from the angst that's out there in our society and culture. Because... Good solutions rarely come um, from from that. And there's a guy um, in, in the 1990s who's actually a rabbi called Edwin Friedman. And he talked about being a non-anxious presence in circumstances. And actually, he, he, a lot of what he did was to do with family counselling. And he basically said, if you can get one person in a, in a family situation or a community situation that's a mess, and if that one person can be a non-anxious presence, they would have the ability to change the, the whole temperature and the environment by being a self-referenced, non-anxious presence. And I think more recently, a Christian guy called John Mark Homer has written a book about this same sort of topic. But um, it's this idea that when everybody else is around you is losing their heads, we can actually remain calm and peaceful. Not because we don't care about the circumstances around us, but because we see Jesus. That we're aware of a different reality. That we think in a different way. That we have access to the wisdom of heaven. And so we, when we look at Joseph, Joseph is a slave, right? But he's a slave amongst slaves. Everybody else is a slave too, but only he rises up to become um, the head of Potiphar's house. You see a prison. Joseph is a prisoner. There's lots of other prisoners too, but he has a different vision. He has a different reality in his mind, and he rises up to become the head of the prison. And then he ends up leading an entire nation. But his faithfulness is to God. His faithfulness is to his sphere of influence and, um, and to his gifting as well. So will we be people who show that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He has the answers. He has the solutions. But he's called us. He has commissioned us to play our part. And so as we as a church think about advance, what does it look like to move forward, to be on the front foot, as I was talking about um, last week? What does that look like for us? How can we take that forward prayerfully and boldly, but also believe that there's a better way forward because God is with us. So we're faithful to him. We are in step with him and we discern what he is calling us to do. And when we do that in the context of community, we can call that out of each other. And, and I think it's probably one of the most important things that we can do. We don't like Northern Ireland. We have this little thing that we spend a lot of our time making sure that lots of people around us don't get a big head. And when somebody gets a little bit big for their boots, either we bring them down or something else brings them down and we go, you see? <coughs> I, don't, I don't really see that in the life of Jesus at all. I, I think it's a false narrative that we've kind of adopted. What about if we, we went to somebody and we said, you're brilliant. See what you do, that's amazing. You're really great at this. You're gifted at that. 
and what do we go, oh no, no, oh no, no. You know, we're all very, and it's kind of a little bit false, but also it, it can be a form of denial that we don't go, well, do you know what, I actually am reasonably good at that. And, you know, thank you for acknowledging that. And how can I be better? Uh, and then you look at that person, you think, well, you're really great at some stuff too. I could, I could return that. I could actually speak that. I could speak life over you too. What would our church start to look like? What would our kids start to look like when we, we tell them what we see over them? And we go, like, you can't tidy your room, but, like, one day you're going you're gonna to leave people. You know, one, one day you're going to see things happen and call that out of them so they have, they have a sense of something upon their lives, even if they don't have the maturity to steward it just yet. For me, the next 25 years is exciting. Because it's full of opportunity. And it will have its ups and downs. I just hope in some small way I can be like Joseph. That no matter what circumstances, no matter what card I'm dealt in life, that I go, Jesus, I know you've got a way forward here. All I wanted to try and do is be faithful. Help me to be faithful. So um, the guys are going to come up and just lead us in one song before we finish. But I really just want to encourage you today to, to kind of just take stock and go... Okay, am I ready to step forward? Am I ready to advance? What does it look like for me to be faithful? But where am I maybe not going to step forward because it, it went really badly in the past? Or uh, I'm worried about what it might look like? Or I've been hurt? What is the enemy using to stop me from stepping forward? And, and just bring that before Jesus as we worship. And ask him to, to heal the hurts and the brokenness that maybe need dealt with, but also that give me a vision, Lord, give me a dream for the future, give my kids dreams for the future, give my grandkids dreams, give my friends dreams and visions, and how can I be one of those people that call out of others too? So uh, let's stand.